Hi there, you're the podcast listeners. I don't know about you all, but I am feeling great because the weather has started to turn in our neck of the woods in the central Adirondack region of New York State. We're seeing some fall leaves on the trees. It's great weather for a campfire, and it's just been really nice to get some relief from the summer heat and from the summer tourists. So if this is your first time listening to our podcast, you should know that we're associated with a monthly magazine, the Northern Logger Magazine, and a trade organization, the Northeastern Loggers Association, which is headquartered in Old Forge, New York. We're in the central Adirondack region here. You can learn more about our magazine and our organization by going to www.northernlogger.com. Also, if you're listening to this podcast and want to find out how to sponsor our episodes, please get in touch with our offices, and we'd love to talk about that. This episode of the Northern Logger podcast is one that I've been excited about for a while, and it's going to be a little different because instead of dealing with a contemporary issue in the forest products industry, this episode is going to deal with a piece of lumberjack folklore. Only this folklore is more fact than lore. Some of our listeners near the Canadian border of Maine might have heard of the jumping Frenchmen or the Maine jumpers, or maybe even of the jumping Frenchmen of Maine disorder. But who were these jumping Frenchmen and what was wrong with them? Well, the story starts with lumberjacks in the Moosehead Lake area of northern Maine in the late 1800s. There was a concentration of French-Canadian woodsmen there that suffered from a sort of mysterious disorder that caused them to be extremely startled at the slightest noise or motion. Sometimes these men would also, when startled, repeat things automatically, they would throw objects across the room, or become spontaneously obedient to commands, or even violent. They weren't so much jumping lumberjacks as they were jumpy lumberjacks, just extremely jumpy. There's an old ballad that was written in 1902 called The Jumper. It was written by the poet Holman Francis Day. Uh, You're going to have to bear with me here because it was written in this kind of old times parody of a French-Canadian lumberjack accent. But it goes something like, Bagor, I jump and jump all time, but just can't help that. There she am, cause when some feller he say boo, morgie, I jump and holler too. It goes on like that. It also goes on to explain that when a train passes the man's house, he jumps in the air and sometimes accidentally even hits his wife. When he brings his worries to the rail track boss, the rail track boss laughs to the point of tears at the lumberjack's predicament. The jumping Frenchman disorder is also noted by the logging historian Robert Pike in his book Tall Trees, Tough Men. Pike writes, If a jumper was shaving, whistling, or just sitting on a riverbank and someone came up behind him suddenly and cried, Jump into the river or into the fire if there was a fire, in he'd jump. If someone stepped up behind him and tickled him lightly, he'd jump through the roof. In another anecdote, Pike describes a sort of slapstick scene. If a line of loggers were sitting on the deacon seat, a bench running the length of the bunkhouse, a lumberjack would pretend to strike his neighbor. Every jumper in the line, if he saw the motion, would turn and strike his neighbor. Or a man would take his pipe from his mouth and pretend to throw it on the floor. Then the jumpers could not help dashing down their own pipes. But what was causing these lumberjacks' jumpiness? 
Over the years, scientists, doctors, and anthropologists have studied startle disorders, that's what they're called as a group, that are similar to the jumping Frenchman of Maine disorder. Jumpiness, after all, isn't confined to the Canadian border. There have been startle disorders documented in Siberia, Japan, the Philippines, Malaysia, and the study of these has led to some interesting questions. Like, is startling caused by genetics or by culture? By studying something as obscure as the jumping Frenchman of Maine disorder, could we perhaps draw larger conclusions about human nature? The first mention of the jumping Frenchman of Maine disorder came about in 1878 when a doctor named George M. Beard announced his intention to travel to northern Maine to study what he called a most incredible nervous phenomena. There, over the course of two years, he conducted a series of experiments among about 50 men who worked in the woods, many of whom were related. He described his experiments in an article published in Popular Science Monthly. I'll let Ron Simons, an anthropologist who studies startle disorders, read from Beard's article. I found two of the jumpers employed about the hotel. With one of them, a young man, 27 years of age, I made the following experiments. While sitting in a chair with a knife in his hand with which he was about to cut his tobacco, he was struck sharply on the shoulder and told to throw it. Almost as quick as the explosion of a pistol, he threw the knife, and it stuck in a beam opposite. At the same time, he repeated the order, throw it, with a certain cry as of terror or alarm. Some of Beard's methods were, by contemporary standards, less than scientific. When standing near one of the employees of the house, he was told to strike, and he struck him violently on the cheek. I took this person into the quiet of my own room, only my friend being with me, in order that the experiment might be made without interruption or disturbance. I sat down by him, explained to him the object of my visit, conversed with him in regard to family history and his own personal experience, and so on. Every so often during the conversation, I struck him without warning on the shoulder of the back or mildly kicked him. And every time he was so struck, he moved his shoulders upward slightly, sometimes moving both the shoulders and the arms with or without the peculiar cry. He knew that I was studying his case. He knew that the kicks and strokes came from me, and yet he could not avoid making the slight jumper motion as though startled. While holding a tumbler in his hand, that is a glass, standing near to him, I told him to throw it. He dashed the tumbler with great violence to the floor, and it broke. He was picking up the pieces in a very quiet and patient way. Nonetheless, when Beard presented his research a couple years later at a meeting of the American Neurological Association, it created waves. It was even picked up by Dr. Guy de la Tourette, who went on to then discover Tourette's syndrome. And weirdly enough, despite this reception, within a decade, the jumping Frenchman of Maine disorder sort of disappeared from view. In my research, it seemed as if it didn't reemerge as a topic of interest until the latter half of the 20th century. And if you're looking at the disorder today, two scholars' names emerge. Marie St. Hilaire, a neurologist in Boston, and Ron Simons, uh, the anthropologist who we heard earlier, who studied and wrote about Lata, a Malaysian startle disorder. We weren't able to interview St. Hilaire. We were able to get in touch with Dr. Ron Simons, for whom jumping Frenchman is a hot tool through which to think about human nature. 
This interview has been edited and condensed for length and clarity. Beard has a number of these cases, and uh, it's quite clear from his description that he's describing the same thing in the main jumpers that I saw in the uh, Latas in Malaysia, and uh, I also studied in the Philippines where it's called Mali Mali. And in films that I saw of the Ainu people of northern Japan, it's the same thing in all of these different places. And why do you think that these startle disorders occur where they do and in the concentration that they do? Well, there are a number of interesting hints to that. One of them is uh, the different sex distribution. There are places where, uh, like in Malaysia, where they're almost all women. And there are places like Maine where they're almost all men. And um, I, I had the good fortune of living in a small Malay fishing village, studying this for, for about a year and talking to a lot of people. And they were all pretty, people were pretty much in agreement about how it comes about. You find somebody who startles really easily, and uh, they're all over the world. Uh, kids tease their mothers if they're jumpy and in the States and whatever. And if you're known to be jumpy by people will come up behind you and poke you and stuff like that. But in most places, there are some real limits in how much you can poke someone that is, and you can't poke strangers for sure. And you can't startle strangers and get away with it. So it only happens in places where somebody who has a propensity to startle easily is startled frequently and violently and perhaps even by strangers. So in the village where I was, people like that might be startled several times every single day of their lives whenever they come into public. And I think this was true of the main jumpers, that once this, once it was noticed that uh, you could really get a jumpy person going if you just worked on them long enough and hard enough, um, they, they developed it there. Um, and that's why it was mostly men because it was, it was guys out in the woods doing it to other guys out in the woods where, um, that kind of horseplay can, can be considered, uh, not too surprising and in any, in a particular culture, uh, quite acceptable. So I know that Beard originally studied families and do you think there's any, uh, merit to the suggestion that this disorder has hereditary qualities? It, it does not seem to run in families in, in my experience. Um, no, I mean, I, I, I get, uh, I get reports, you know, my grandmother had it, but my mother didn't have it. And I, and I have it, but none of my siblings have it. And, uh, it has not been studied formally, uh, in that way. But uh, the two things that's, that are uh, that are against a genetic hypothesis, uh, at least in terms of uh, jumping, is uh, this very strange distribution. That is, if it's genetic, how on earth do you get it among the Ainu in Siberia and Frenchmen in Maine and uh, Malays and Indonesians and uh, it, you know, they don't they don't share any kind of genetics um, there. There may well be um, some propensity to startle more easily in some people than others, although even that I'm not I'm not sure of. Uh, we all know about uh, PTSD and that, you know, having certain kinds of traumatic experiences leads one to startle 
uh, particularly easily. And my my best guess is, yes, there are probably some people who have the propensity to startle more easily than others, uh, but that's the extent of it. And for most people who startle easily, it's not because of a genetic propensity, but rather because uh, of some kind of life experiences that have made them made them wary or, or uh, something like that. And you wrote your book in the mid-90s, and when we talked briefly before, you said that there have been a couple of focus periods of interest in startle disorders and this disorder specifically, but that uh, it wasn't necessarily consistent over the last century or so. And I was just curious, why, why do you think that people get interested in startle disorders when they do? Well, as, as I said at the beginning of our, our talk, um, the, the real issue was not, didn't have anything to do with startle per se. It was uh, the question of what's the relationship between biology and culture? How much of any kind of behavior is because of biological factors and how much of the behavior is uh, because of cultural factors? And as as you mentioned, startle was just a, a great hot tool uh, for for dealing with uh, this issue. I, I think people have always, at least since Darwin, been interested in in that question. I think they always will be interested in that question. And I think because it has such strong political implications that in terms of power and stuff, and particularly, I think, in terms of various racist theories about people and sexist theories about people and stuff, there are, there are very good reasons why people are very wary of any explanations of behavior that uh, suggests that there's some innate biological factors. Uh, innate biological factors have been used to justify all kinds of injustice and oppression uh, of different peoples and uh, of uh, different sexes, women, of course. Um, so people are wary of that. And uh, Margaret Mead, who was a very influential anthropologist uh, in the last century, uh, took a very radical position that there really were absolutely no differences between men and women and there were no differences, biological differences that made any differences in behavior. And a fair amount of anthropological thought has followed Margaret Mead in that, uh, in that regard. I don't think it's correct, but uh, I can, I can understand why people are very hesitant to consider even the possibility of uh, biology being important. The way this starts, the, 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 the jumping we're talking about is not just startling easily. It's uh, startling easily and then matching what you see or hear or, and obeying commands that you're given. Um, but it starts w uh, with identifying people who startle easily. And there's all kinds of, like we were, when you asked me about Gilles de la Tourette, there's all kinds of reasons why people startle easily. And yes, uh, uh, when people are, you know, depressed and introspective and all kinds of stuff, they may be in a period where they're more prone to startle. You may have yourself found periods when you were more easily startled. You know, you've been up late studying uh, all night and, you know, there you are at the library and, you know, it's late. All kinds of stuff can make a person more easily startled. Whether that is developed into 
this whole jumping thing with the obedience and matching depends on what other people do. So the mysterious disorder may not be as mysterious as it seems after all. This past summer, I had the opportunity to meet a group of young guys at Paul Smith's Summer School of Logging in the Northern Adirondacks. These guys were mostly coming from around New York State and are interested in pursuing a career in timber harvesting. So they were learning the basics of mechanical harvesting as well as hand felling and were spending their days getting up to speed about safety and productivity and any other aspect of this business that you can imagine. I had the opportunity to sit down with a few of them and talk about their experience. All right, my name is Tanner Potter. I'm a teacher's assistant here for Paul Smith College for the School of Logging. Um, I work for the microenterprise crew during the school semester and during the summer. Uh, teacher's assist- I'm a teacher's assistant for the summer session from Paul Smith College, too. Um, so I help out with, you know, just making sure everyone's running safe and, you know, make, maintaining um, safe procedures and keeping their equipment in good running order. Right. And then when I'm not being a teacher's assistant, I, uh, I cut with the microenterprise crew and we maintain the uh, management plans on the college property. And you're a, a rising junior, did you say? Yep, yep. I'm going to be a junior this coming year, uh, this coming fall, and that's... What I'm looking forward to is working with, well, not with Dave anymore, but with Tom and the other guys and cutting for production, you know, kind of getting my foot into the industry a little bit, and I think that'll really help. Right. Um, and then you tell me your name and what you're... Uh, my name's Gage Lundell. I'm a student of the Paul Smith School of Logging this summer. Uh, back home, I work at Forcon. I work at the Faulkner office. Uh, basically, we just go around and mark trees. We're a bunch of forester and forester technicians. And where's where's home? Uh, Chautauqua County. Okay. Faulkner, New York. Yeah, got it. Um, and then? I'm Dante Scott. I'm a student at Paul Smith School of Logging. I live in Masonville, New York, Delaware County. And I've just always been in the logging scene and just looking for ways to do it right. Right. So you come from a logging family? Yeah, my great-grandfathers and everything. Wow. Great. Um, Tanner and just... Um, just a little bit about what it's like to be in an instructor role here, having, you know, started yourself a few years ago. Yeah. So I, I grew up in logging also with my family, and um, we learned conventional styles, and I learned that from my uncle, and he learned that from his old bosses and stuff like that. And it's kind of different trying. So I learned the new technique, the Soren Ericsson Swedish style of felling, a couple years ago. And now it's kind of interesting to see how quickly I've become into a, like a teaching role and instructor, not really an instructor, but, you know, just making sure that they're going through the procedures right. And it's just kind of mm-hmm. nice to be able to teach someone the newer, correct way of doing stuff as opposed to the older way. Right. So what's that, you know, what's that learning curve like for most people? It's slow sometimes, you know, especially if you worked in the woods before and picked up conventional habits and, you know different safety safety issues that people just pick up bad habits of not having someone there repetitively reminding them to uh, to you know keep safe and um, doing maintaining the safe procedures and stuff like that right and uh, yeah it's just kind of interesting and what do you want to do after you get out of school I would like to start my own business uh, Mm -hmm. my own forestry business uh, logging and possibly consulting forestry Mm -hmm. But I grew up logging. I love being in the woods. I love cutting trees. So, Do you think you'll stay in this area? 
I don't, I don't know. I'm from Vermont, so I might go back there. I might go out west for a little bit. I'm not sure it's the area that I want to be in, but I know what I want to do. Right. Out west would be interesting. Yeah, it would, it would be very interesting. I think it'd be fun to go out there for a few years, and then if I like it, stay. Thanks for listening to this month's Northern Logger podcast. If you like our podcast or have topics you'd like to hear discussed, don't hesitate to get in touch. You can reach me, Eileen Townsend, at eileen at northernlogger.com. You can also go rate and review us in the iTunes store. It really helps. Until next time, enjoy the nice fall weather and stay safe in the woods. (laughs) 